When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The nice thing about writing narrative fiction is it's a writer's medium. Theatre is an actor's medium, opera is a singer's medium and a composer's medium, film is a director's medium. Narrative fiction is the writer, it's just me and the reader. And I love it, I love that. It's just so nice to have my own voice coming to fruition at last. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. And on today's episode, we have a recovering comedy writer. At least that's what he calls himself, but he is so much more than that. I'm so happy to welcome to the show Richard Sparks. Hi, Richard. Thank you for being on the True Fiction Project. Hello, Renita. So, Richard, you know, before we launch into what you're currently doing these days, which is writing fantasy fiction, and I am fascinated with your book, Let's talk a little bit more about what you have been doing. And I know that everybody probably asks you about your writing work, what you've done for John Cleese, Rowan Atkinson, and others. So why don't I let you take over and tell us what that's all about? Well, it's a very long time ago, but it, it's still very clear in my memory because uh, Rowan was doing a three-person show in Hampstead Theatre in London in 1978. And uh, one of the people in it was my former, well, my, my former performing partner. I'm, I'm not an actor, but I did student comedies and basically fed lines to the funny guy who's Peter Wilson, who was very funny. And um, so I'd written for him before. Rowan had Richard Curtis. They were just straight out of university. Peter and I had left a year or two before, and we were the only writers on the show. So Rowan was used to writing with or Richard or without him, and Peter was used to writing with me. And one morning after rehearsal, I thought, well, I ought to write something for the new guy. It's a bit just unfair just to write for my old friend, an ex-college roommate. Let's, and this, you know, Rowan's clearly incredibly talented. We'd seen him in a student show and just been blown away by how good he was. So I just woke up one morning with a bit of a hangover, I confess, and started writing a list of silly names. It got sillier and sillier. Best way to write. With a hangover. I used to I'd try and write at night with a beer, but uh, um, yes. Anyway, so I just wrote the list of names, realized that this was promising, and it was obviously a sketch going somewhere. And by that time, I'd thought, ah, this is a schoolmaster reading out the roll call of the boys in his class. Typical English, probably minor boarding school. And um, then, then the, the sketch just appeared to me and followed it on and completed it and had a nice punchline at the end. And so I typed it up with one or two little changes and... Um, I still have the manuscript, which I kept, but I gave the typescript to Rowan that morning in rehearsal. I think we started rehearsal at 10.30 or 11. I just handed it to him beforehand, and he sort of looked, looked at it and started reading, and just sort of, oh, sort of grunted, mm, sort of, and walked off reading it. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, he didn't, he didn't say, this is terrible, because <laughs> it was the first thing I'd ever written for him to do. And Peter always said to me afterwards, why did you write that for me? But 
you know, if it hadn't had a genius like Rowan performing it, nobody would ever have heard of it. Peter was a good comic actor, but not in Rowan's League. And in fact, he said doing that show, it was, it was very lonely being on stage after all before Rowan, because Rowan's brilliance just took all the air out of the room and anyone else beside him, um, you know, is apt to not shine by comparison. So a year later, I got a call from Rowan in my house in Brixton. He said, John Cleese just rang. He's asked me to be in his new charity comedy show. And can, can I do the schoolmaster? I said, you bet. Uh, the show didn't even have a name. He'd done one before called On Her Majesty's Pleasure. Later, it was called The Secret Policeman's Ball. So Rowan and I met in the captain's cabin, a pub in St. James's, walked down to the theatre, into the artist's entrance, which is very glamorous. And there were all my heroes like Billy Connolly and Pete Townsend of The Who and Peter Cook and various pythons. And Rowan introduces me to John Cleese, which was lovely. And then Rowan did the show. And he literally, if I could use that word, I think he literally would be okay, walked out on stage an unknown and walked off a star. Now, I'd seen him do the sketch 20 or 30 times at Hampstead, so I knew it worked. And he came on stage. If you look at it on YouTube, make sure you get the right one, because Rowan Richard, uh, later wrote a new, rude version. Uh, but the original, Rowan, you know, the way he eats the audience alive and takes all the time, I mean, it's just extraordinary talent. And a huge ovation at the end of it. And it became his party piece. It was the show, uh, sketch he closed to all his... A West End shows on. So I got a nice bit of royalties from that for a while. And um, he's, I wonder what happened to him ever afterwards. I mean, <laughs> no one's ever heard of him since. <laughs> no one's heard of him since. Absolutely. But this is so interesting. I mean, it is fair to say that you, Richard, brought Rowan Atkinson into the limelight with the schoolmaster piece. Well, you know, the, the, the thing is, I auditioned the soprano Daniel Denise a week before her 15th birthday, along with the composer Lee Holdridge, who was writing an opera for the Los Angeles Opera, and I was his librettist. And we were looking for a, a, an immature voice, a schoolgirl who could sing the part of a young Hispanic Latina girl. And was there anyone in town who could do it? And Danielle came in, nailed the audition. And of course, he's extraordinarily beautiful. And uh, with mum, Beverly, sitting behind her. And she walked out and I turned to Lee and sort of said, I hope this is all right with Lee because she sounded incredible to me. And Lee said, okay, we got one. <laughs> and Danielle has gone. Or she was singing, She made her debut at the Met at 19 in solo parts. She's a huge star now, singing opera all over the world and, and musicals occasionally. I mean, I heard Julius Caesar at Glyndebourne. Was it? I mean, she's an amazing performer. The thing about Rowan and Danielle is they would get there anyway. You know, they, they don't need any. So for them for either for me to say, oh, I launched their careers. It's absurd. I just happened to be around at the beginning. And I was lucky enough to spot that talent that was obviously clearly visible to everyone, but hadn't been properly used yet. Well, I think you are very modest because we all know that uh, with the comedy, with the performance, whatever kind of performance it is, the writing is so key, so critical. So without further ado, we've got to listen to a clip from The Schoolmaster. All right. Your essays. Discuss the contention that Cleopatra had the body of a roll-top desk and the mind of a duck. <laughs> Oxford Cambridge Board, O-Level Paper, 1976. <laughs> Don't fidget bland. The answer... Yes. <laughs> Jones M, orifice, sediment, and under manager. See me afterwards. <laughs> Most of you, of course, didn't write nearly enough. Dint, your answer was unreadable. Put it away, plectrum. <laughs> I 
If I see it once more, this period plectrum, I shall have to tweak you. <laughs> Do you have a solicitor, plectrum? <laughs> You're lying, plectrum, so I shall tweak you anyway. <laughs> see me afterwards to be tweaked. Yes, isn't life tragic? <laughs> Don't sulk, boy, for God's sake. Has Matron seen those boils? <laughs> Horrid little twerp. Bland German Nancy Boy Potter and a manager cribbing. And a manager answer upside down. Do you do it deliberately, under manager? You're a moron, under manager. What are you? <laughs> Carbuncle on the backside of humanity. <laughs> Don't snigger, Babcock. It's not that funny. Antony and Cleopatra is not a funny play. If Shakespeare had meant it to be funny, he would have put a joke in it. <laughs> there is no joke in Antony and Cleopatra. Does anyone know a Shakespearean joke? Nibble? Nibble! Leave Orifice alone! <laughs> nice to hear it again, <laughs> after all these years. <laughs> I'm sure it's always great to hear it. Well, the funny thing, my, my father was a retired school teacher, public school, and I used to tease him that this was him. And he said, I'm nothing like that. And of course, he wasn't anything like that. Rowan based his character, his performance on Schoolmasters, he knew or imagined from his own past. And they were saying my words, but his, you know, Chekhov said, I write one thing, the actor writes another thing, together we make a play. This is a perfect example of that. I wrote the words, Rowan wrote the character and the performance, together we made a sketch. Fantastic. And I love how the inspiration really comes from true life, from your dad and his schoolmaster days, even though that was different. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't from him. I just used to tease him about it. I wasn't thinking of him when I wrote it. You did mention earlier on many, many references to musicians and music, and you've had this huge career also in the music industry. Is that right? Yes, I've written songs for films and uh, had them sung by people like Placido Domingo and Eric Idle, Dom DeLuise. Vanessa Williams. What have you not done, Richard? Oh, well, uh, the thing is, all the work I've done has been collaborative. Even if you write a, an opera, you know, I wrote Dulcie Rose based on a short story of Isabel Allende's that I spotted and said, this is the one we should do. And Isabel was very pleased with the result, which is great because I'm a huge admirer of her work. But it's, it's going to be collaborative. So you create it with the composer, rewrite it with him. And well, I was the director of that as well. So we didn't have a director in the voice, but we had Placido Domingo as the conductor. And at a certain point, the director of an opera hands the room over. Once you finish your final rehearsal in the room, it's the conductor's room. And you back off. <laughs> if, if you notice anything at all, you have a word with the stage manager and, you know, you can then talk to the actor and say something. But by then, you should be locked and loaded. And they have a thing called Zitzprobe, where they're sitting down and the conductor is conducting the live orchestra. The actors are sitting, the singers are sitting. And by then, your job is over. And so the nice, if I can skip through to my book, the nice thing about writing narrative fiction is it's a writer's medium. 
theater is an actor's medium, opera is a singer's medium and a composer's medium, film is a director's medium. Narrative fiction is the writer, it's just me and the reader. It's just you, your story, and the reader. Right. And I love doing I love that. It's just so nice to have my own voice coming to fruition at last. Absolutely. So, you know, going from comedy sketches to opera, music, to now narrative fiction, which is quite different. And you're writing fantasy. Tell us more about, you've got a book coming out. Tell us about it. And fantasy is fantasy, but all fiction is inspired from real life. I heard someone on the radio say this yesterday, all good art is a reflection of life. Fantasy is perhaps a distorting mirror, but the truths you can reach in fantasy are much different and more profound in many ways than those you can do in real life, because you can set up different parameters. You can set up different uh, lines of progress in the plot. What you're doing is, in fact, it's very interesting to learn this from Leslie Robin, my editor. She's an Australian uh, woman. She's absolutely brilliant. And I done a lot of script editing myself. So I've been both sides of the table and working with Leslie is extraordinary. And she's, I, I always thought that there was a difference between narrative and drama scripts, whatever, in that it's show business. So you're showing and in narrative you're telling. And Leslie said, no, not true. Show me. Don't tell me, show me in a scene. If you want, if you want to get this information across, don't hit me with a lump of uh, what's it called exposition, bring it to life in a scene. And that way you feed it in gently. You have to earn your exposition. That's a brilliant insight. Yes, show, don't tell, sort of your... Absolutely. But in, narr in narrative, you show, don't tell as well. Yeah, yeah, no, no. That's the core rule for writing narrative fiction. So absolutely, uh, it, it's a good point to hone in on. But now your book is called New Rock, New Role, which is, I'm guessing, a metaphor unto itself. Well, it's a pun, R-O-L-E. It arose from my love of role-playing games on the internet. I've played a number of massively multiplayer online role-playing games and solo adventures. You know, I, I prefer the sword and sorcery worlds or outer space. I, I'm not into first-person shooters, FPS, what some people who don't play games call them shoot-em-ups, but gamers don't. I'm not particularly interested in target practice. And these worlds that the designers and developers have created for us are astonishing. You can just go into them and wander around. You don't have to do anything. You can just walk around or build a house or, or you can do quests. And the problem is that all games in the end, however brilliant the design and the world and the atmosphere, they all are the same in that there are only two quests, go and kill something or go and fetch something, which we call kill or FedEx in the gaming world. And I thought I was tripping out on it and talking to somebody in one of my raid groups. I was saying, you know, we were thinking about what would it actually be like to be in that world and actually to be that character. And supposing you designed the wrong character and you suddenly discover that you were an awe. So and I, and then I realized there's only one way to find out, and that's to write it. So the role, R-O-L-E, the setup is, and, and the idea just fell out of the sky one day and hit me on the head. I started writing. I've written four in the series now, and I'm on the fifth. And I'm just going to keep going till I drop. Not always been easy, but <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of dead ends and, and back turns, but just a fantastic delight to find my own voice and my own world, which no, I mean, no, nobody else could have written this. It's That's just the nice thing for me about it. So the idea was that three gamers, one of whom is a retired English school teacher, based on me. Also, mm -hmm. There we go. Back to the English school teacher. Well, yeah, exactly. Because it's basically me as the lead character because it's narrated in the first person and I've done the audiobook with my own voice. Well, we couldn't afford a real actor. They win the World Championship of Sword and Sorcery online. And the next thing they know, it goes very weird indeed. That's, I think you wanted me to read a, an excerpt. I can start with that, which sets the book up. And then the other, once you're in the, that world, the new world, it's not a game. It's for real. Uh, In-game, his avatar is called Dax, D-A-X-X. -X. His teammates are Grell, who's the orc avatar of an Australian guy. 
and Krista, who is the sword dancing, dual wielding whirlwind avatar of an Asian American girl. And that's all that Dax knows about the other two is that one's Australian, one's Asian American, also they say. And the lovely thing about online and role-playing games is you are who you want to be. You create whatever avatar you want to be. And so one of the nice things that happens very early on is this retired school teacher, to his shock, discovers he's Dax for real, his own avatar, but he's young again. So he's a heroic young battle mage. Well, why would he want to make an avatar that looks like his boring old self, you know, just a <laughs> dull retired school teacher? You know, there's, there's a lot of the fantasy that we have while playing, but it becomes real. It's not a game. If it is a game, it's a game of death. He doesn't even know where the others are or if they're there. He's got to survive. Wolves are howling and chasing him, and it gets worse. He's immediately captured by two wiry little woodskin archers and marched off to be sold at auction as an outlaw. So he just he levels down, as we'd say in game. Gets, and so then he has to train and learn and discover what's available in this. He doesn't even know if there is magic in this world. You know, he, he was a battle mage. Now he's just got a sword and a shield and no clue. So it's fun. Yeah, it sounds incredible. But I have to ask you, Richard, so you said that nobody else but you could have written this story, which is so great to hear. That's what you want with every single fiction story. To really develop it, you said it just came out of the sky one day, but is that really true? I mean, I'm imagining you had to go online, play these games again and again. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd done my research without realizing it. I never thought I was going to. I mean, the thing is, I've, I, my wife hates it when I say this, but I tried to write fiction before and failed. And I'm, I'm really pleased that none, well, I've finished the books, but they were just mediocre and my agents were happy to send them out. We got some polite rejections, but nobody wanted to yeah, they don't publish books. They publish writers, authors. And if you're not a name, it's very big risk for a publisher to take you on. So I'm delighted that Kasich's taken me on. They're a fabulous science fiction and fantasy house, very forward-looking with lots of great ideas. I'm just, and of course, they gave me Leslie Robin as my editor. So yes, I'd done my research without knowing it. The idea hit me. And just, to, you know, if you'd asked me a week before I started, you're going to be writing another book next week. I'd have said, no, that, that's, that ship sailed. I've tried. I didn't fit in there, but I fit here because it's my own voice. And why I'd given up is because I thought there's no point in writing things that just anyone could have written. And I realized in this one, I'm writing it for me. This is, I can't wait to find out what the guys get up to next, the scrapes they get into. And circling back to comedy, comedy is not people telling jokes, nice people telling jokes. That's a dinner party. Comedy is fear and pain and misery and disasters and things going wrong and people falling into puddles and betrayals and miscommunications. And what good adventure isn't full of that? So it's a natural fit. Exactly. Yes. The character journey and everything that you see through the character's eyes and the comedic dysfunction that ensues. Of course, that's what great comedy is and very much part and parcel of narrative fiction. So this is the part of the show when we delve into the fiction itself. You're going to read us a bit of your story. But before you do, Richard, let me ask you, where can our listeners find out more about your work, websites, social media, anything that you would like to tell us and any events to look out for? Uh, yes, the book is published on the 12th of December. Pre-orders are appreciated because they help towards the first week's sales figures. There's a website, richardsparks.com. There's no E in Sparks, so www.richardsparks.com. All the details are up there. Also, Kazik is the publisher, C-A-E-Z or Z-I-K.com. I'm on Instagram. I think I'm called richardsparks underscore author. There's a Facebook page, which is something similar. I, I don't do all that. Um, I have My assistant does that. 
And there's a launch party in London on December the 11th, which is going to be a lot of fun. Lots of old friends coming. Sounds amazing. I hope it goes fantastically. I'm sure it will. Richard, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. This is Renita, your host for The True Fiction Project. And now to the premise of The True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We wore them down and took them out. Barbarian first, then sorcerer. Their sword and board man was the last to drop, weakened by my energy drain, his legs chopped from under him by Grell, priesters' swords punching through his shredded armor. We whooped. We hollered. We celebrated. We cavorted. We reveled in the applause and the cheers of the crowd. I was stunned. Did we just win? I was so caught up in the euphoria of the moment that I couldn't put my finger on the moment when everything started to go weird. But go weird it did. Very weird indeed. We were dragged out of the arena by some invisible, irresistible force, in different directions, unable to control what was happening. We gasped, we squawked, we shot off down wild rabbit holes at speed, sucked out of our post-fight celebrations. The cheers of the audience still echoing in our ears amid the roaring and the bucking. Christa! I yelled as we plunged down pipes of flashing light and through blank tubes of darkness, shouting for each other, turning over and over and around and around, helpless to resist. And then I lost them as they vanished into a disintegrating digital vortex, whipped off and away. I called for Grell, for both of them, until my voice grew hoarse, but I got no reply. They'd gone. Where? And where was I going? My vision filled with distortions and flashes of blinding color. It was unbearable. I tore at my headset, wondering what the hell kind of system malfunction this was. It wouldn't come off. I was on my feet, staggering around in my room, yanking desperately at my headset, which was firing all kinds of flashes and interference at me between moments of terrifying emptiness. Then it was as if the world tipped sideways. I was screaming. I know that because I felt it in my throat, but I couldn't hear a thing. Everything stopped. Everything went black. Then I was hurtling again, through blasts of light and colour, punctuated by patches of darkness. Nothing made sense. I couldn't breathe properly. I couldn't hear, or see, or feel. I just needed to get this to stop. I kept punching myself in the face as I tried to dislodge my headset. I was scratching at my forehead as I hauled on the damn thing, which refused to release its grip on me. What the hell was going on? I couldn't stand the mad visuals that were piling in on me wherever I turned, so I scrunched my eyes shut. I took a deep breath and struggled, continuing to wrestle with my headset. When I finally wrenched it off, my whole body felt as if it was being ripped out of the collapsing virtual world I'd just been buffeted around in. My chest was heaving for breath. I was bent double from the exertion. I opened my eyes. I was standing on grass. My feet were in scuffed brown boots. What? I'd been wearing slippers. I'd never seen these boots before in my life. Dark grey leggings were tucked into them. 
I'd been wearing sweatpants. I was standing in a meadow, not the floor of my living room. A warm breeze teased at my clothes. How is that possible? It was meant to be the middle of winter. Not here it wasn't, and my house was nowhere to be seen. I straightened up, startled, and looked around. Where were the others? I was in the middle of nowhere, a nowhere that I didn't recognize. All that I could see was hills, woods, and grassland. In the distance, snow-capped mountains gleamed on the horizon. There was no sign of civilization. There was no farmland or pasture, no fences or felled trees. I was in untouched, endless wilderness. I knew this wasn't a scene inside my headset because I was holding it in my hand. Only, what was I seeing? It wasn't my headset. It was a crude, bronze helmet. I peered closer at it. The face reflected back at me from its curved surface was indistinct, but all too recognisable. It wasn't mine, it was Dax's. His long, blonde hair fell forward over my shoulders as I stared back at him. At me! I froze in shock. I was physically in my avatar's body. When I managed to speak, my voice was a croak. Uh, guys? Krista? Grell? Can you hear me? They didn't respond. I was all alone, on an unknown hillside, talking to a helmet. wanted to share with listeners that season two of Shadow Realm, my YA fantasy fiction narrative podcast is out. Episodes are being released now. So do look for it on any podcast platform that you tune in to listen to your favorite audio. This is the True Fiction Project, and I am your host, Renita Hora. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.